Ricky Gervais is a British comedian who's also an atheist, and he once quipped about God and the Holocaust. He said he wasn't there, and if you believe he was, he didn't do anything. I've got a thing about praying. I'm accused of arrogance because I don't pray, and I say, what could be more arrogant than praying to God to find your car keys when he did nothing to stop the Holocaust? End quote. Now, Gervais is certainly uh, giving a variation of an age-old argument called the problem of evil. How can God and evil coexist? Well, the pantheist says evil doesn't exist. The atheist says God doesn't exist. And the Christian says both exist. How can that be? Well, a thoughtful Christian, I think, can empathize with this conundrum, but is not without reason to acknowledge the coexistence of God and evil. You have the free will of man, the ultimate justice of God being delivered at a future time or a couple things to think about. In other words, uh, if God were to get rid of all the evil on the earth, ask yourself who would be standing. Because we've all done evil, right? So if he got rid of all evil, none of us would stand. The fact is, is that his mercy is at play in allowing people still to live on the earth. Perhaps most decisively, is that God has dealt with evil through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that each individual heart has the opportunity to come to God for forgiveness and have their heart transformed. But lastly, how does any human know of the evil God has remanded on earth through his intervention? We are readily aware of uh, of a car wreck that maybe we witness or even that we're in, but how many times has God prevented such a happening with our knowledge or without our knowledge? In other words, um, you see uh, just driving down the road, you don't know what God has done to keep you safe, his angels protecting you. You may not be aware of anything like that. And I think the same thing goes on with evil, that God is working behind the scenes in ways that we don't even understand. Uh, we're not aware or we overlook. In Peter's section of persecution with Christians, we read of Christians' responsibility and of God's intervention. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Zealous has the meaning of an ardent lover. It's used of Jewish zealots who loved their native land and were willing to sacrifice anything, including comfort, home, and even their own lives. Peter is saying the Christian is to have a zealous intensity in loving goodness and integrity. And when a Christian has this kind of dedication, Peter says, who is there to harm you? Now, there are two ways to look at this statement. 
The first is that Peter is making a general statement, much like we see with the writer of Proverbs. In other words, normally you are not harmed when you do good. In other words, when you work hard, you're usually rewarded for it. But that doesn't guarantee you may not lose your job. When you eat well, you can expect to be healthy. But that doesn't mean you're guaranteed to never be sick. And so when you do good, it normally means that you'll avoid trouble. But that doesn't mean it will never happen or you'll never suffer. Another way to look at this is that no one can cause harm to the believer ultimately in their relationship to God and in the protection of their soul. Paul would write in Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? And Jesus said, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If God has you in Christ, there is nothing to fear, because people cannot hurt that which matters the most. Either way, Peter is encouraging the believer to see benefit for pursuing goodness. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So, normally people won't suffer when they do good, but if you do, make sure it's not because of wrongdoing. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, means that you're resisting the cultural pull toward evil, and that often shines a light on others, and there's the rub. You'll eventually face resistance. And when that happens, our passage says, you'll be blessed. So there is blessing when we suffer. Peter is trying to get these persecuted Christians to see the benefit of faithful endurance. God can bless in this life or the next. Christians are blessed by not having fear and not being anxious about what people can do, and God gives them a peace and a joy. Peter says in chapter 4, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And when the Spirit rests upon you, we have confidence of God's presence and pleasure. Paul said, when we suffer, it also assists us in drawing to Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Know him power, sharing. There's a relationship, there's an intimacy that takes place that otherwise wouldn't because of the sufferings. Now, besides present blessings on earth, there are future heavenly rewards. We saw last week the words of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The point is, is that Whatever hardships we go through do not have the last word. God promises not just reward, but great 
reward in heaven. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then elsewhere we read, for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, I can endure the dentist's drill or the pulling of a tooth because I know that in the end, I'm going to enjoy, hopefully, a mouth that is healthy and pain-free. I can endure the pain that comes from working out because that's going to mean, hopefully, better health, right? So the point is that the Christian can endure pain that comes when others are against us because of the heavenly reward that is much greater than the temporary affliction. Verse 14 is a paraphrase of Isaiah 8, 13. It says, But the Lord of hosts, him you regard as holy, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. The setting is that of Ahaz, the king of Judah who faced a crisis of the looming invasion of the Assyrian army. The kings of Israel and Syria wanted Ahaz to join them in alliance, but Ahaz refused. So Israel and Syria threatened to invade Judah. And behind the scenes, Ahaz aligns himself with Assyria. And the prophet Isaiah warned him against making an ungodly alliance and urged him to put his trust and faith in God and not another nation, and that God would deliver them. So when Isaiah writes to regard the Lord as holy, he's saying you should not fear uh, these other nations, but fear Yahweh, the God of Israel, and put your trust in him alone. And those who trust in him will find their security in him. But those who refuse to trust, they're going to stumble. The same is true for the believers being persecuted in Peter's day. When one fears or is troubled, there's a temptation, I think, to kind of fade the heat, to somehow run away. Uh, There's terror that causes you to flee, for some, their very belief system. Well, I don't really believe that. I'm not with those people. Uh, Peter's counsel was that they should not allow this to happen. We are not to fear the suffering that unbelievers might cause us. We are to trust in the Lord, believing that his blessing will far outweigh any trouble. But in your hearts, honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is an overarching principle, I think, that needs to be in place if we hope to suffer well. The Christian who suffers well has come to terms with Christ as Lord and welcomes any path that honors and glorifies Christ. The passage in Isaiah said, But the Lord of hosts, him who you regard as holy, 
The word for Lord is Yahweh in Isaiah. And now Peter adds Christ to that in his paraphrase. Christ is worthy of this title. And this is a clear nod to Christ as the Messiah and God. So we recognize his lordship from our heart. There is a deep-seated, inward confidence in Christ as reigning Lord and King. Certainly of the world, but of me. He has all powers subject to him. And this perspective upon Christ positions us northward, our perspective northward, when uncertainties and trials come. When our hearts are in Christ as Lord, we're not near as vulnerable. But when we have our hearts on possessions, comfort, earthly pursuits, what happens? We are concerned about losing those things, and then we're easily hurt. When our hearts are upon Christ, the most precious thing is our relationship in him, and we therefore are more secure. You know, many claim that God is unfair when troubles come, but this positions our hearts to be readily angry with God, with Christ as Lord in life or in death. I am his to do what he wills. Give me life, give me death, whatever it is, Lord. I'm in Christ, and nothing can really harm me in that regard. Peter's admonition is to give Christ quick credit for the confidence and hope. I don't think that this encouragement is not so much for us to be an expert in giving scientific data or bibliographical evidence for the Bible, creation facts, or apologetic topics. Nothing wrong with those things. I love those things. And those can be a great encouragement to our faith. I'm just saying I don't think that's the full import of this passage. Peter's not calling us to be an expert. Rather, he's encouraging us to point to our hope in Christ to anyone who asks. Persecuted people have little reason to rejoice in their circumstances. But because of Christ in them, hope is palpable, even when outward circumstances say otherwise. So no wonder people would ask, why are you filled with hope? With Christ as our hope, the resurrection and the coming of Christ are in clear focus. And when others are perplexed by it, I would suggest to you that there's not anyone in this room who does not have the ability to point to Christ and say, he's the reason for my hope, because of my confidence in him, because of my hope in him. I would cause you to remember this. We are called to be witnesses, not prosecuting attorneys. Peter says to do so with gentleness and respect, right? Gentleness speaks of kindness as we speak to other people. Respect speaks of our reverence to God. So we're not trying to argue or outsmart the inquisitor with barbs and piercing one-liners, but we're to love them. 
I don't know many people who've come to Christ by being bullied into the kingdom from a know-it-all. He wants us to approach other people with love. This past week, Janet and I had the pleasure of having somebody from another country in our home had some issue with his parents, and he wanted to know how to approach his parents with inquiries about faith. And in their society, there's a lot of uh, respect for the elders. And so we talked about, you know, making sure that there's appreciation for your parents, there's love expressed to your parents. But maybe instead of making these bold proclamations about how wrong they are, ask questions. Invite them into a civil discussion, and you come off less offensive. And I think that's one avenue for gentleness and respect instead of trying to rule the conversation. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So when we share this hope, there's a sense of responsibility that we're being truthful in our words and in our actions, that we have a good conscience. You know, when a person does not have a good conscience, and we've all experienced this, it's a great burden upon us, is it not? Right? You might always be looking over your shoulder Wondering when people are going to find out about what the real deal is. That's why when you teach the Bible in in any format, uh, you feel this great stewardship when you teach. That there be an alignment with what you're teaching. It's why James says, teachers shall incur a stricter judgment. I've had this sense when dealing with demonic spirits. You're talking to somebody And you know that there may be accusations, uh, unconfessed sin, because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. When the Bible speaks of a conscience, it speaks of a defiled conscience in Titus 1, a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4, an evil conscience in Hebrews 10. These are varying degrees of description of a person who repels the Word of God, and denying clear truths of the Word, either by action or by belief. There's a passage that's probably familiar to most of you in Psalm 32. It speaks of David's transgressions, his unconfessed sin, and how his conscience bothered him. And listen to how it's described. David says, my bones wasted away. He was groaning All day long, God's Spirit convicted him, and his hand was heavy upon him, and his strength was dried up as the fever heat of summer. The restlessness of an uneasy conscience, it divides the heart, it drains our strength, so that we're unable to function with confidence, with freedom. Our conscience is a guide, and the Word of God is our teacher, and the Holy Spirit connects those two. Notice that Paul doesn't say, if you are slandered, but 
when you are slandered. I think probably most humans experience slander in their life at one time or another, but Christians especially when they are living at odds with the culture. The word means to speak maliciously. So the comments that others, others make about you, they don't have to be objective, they don't have to be factual, but effective in causing injury to a reputation. And Peter is saying, when this happens, understand this, the critic does not have the last word, and their comments will be judged against the truth and against the righteousness of Christ. More specifically, Peter says, the revilers will be put to shame. This occurs when the critic comes to believe the gospel here on earth or face the reality at the end of life. We read elsewhere from Peter, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now let's just pause for a second. Why is Peter stating these things? It's to encourage all of us that when we're mistreated, we're not to retaliate. We're to be gentle because God is in control and that he's working and using our faithfulness for good and rewarding the same. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, then than for doing evil. You know, some are prone to push clear boundaries. Um, you know, maybe it's in the government or in relationships by being a troublemaker. And this is not how Peter would define suffering for good. There are those who relish in trouble that happens to them when they are self-righteous. You know, look how godly I am, right? Because these people are upset with me. But you created your own trouble. This is not Peter's intent. Rather, when a person objectively, lovingly follows Christ, they are maligned for it. This falls under the will of God. And Peter says elsewhere, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen, suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. It not only comes in persecution, but it comes with just difficult trials. I have a friend who I met at OTC who is friends with a family who had a horrible tragedy last week that you may have read in the paper. Four boys and their grandfather were murdered in Texas by an escaped convict. Chris Collin, the father of three of the boys, one of the other boys was his nephew. Uh, it was his father that was killed, Chris Collins. 
and three of his boys. And he's quoted as saying this. Even that night, before we had all the information and knew anything, I looked at my backyard and said, God, tell me my babies are okay. And almost audibly, I could hear, they're okay. I've got them. They're okay. No, it wasn't the okay that a flesh and blood father wanted. But in that moment, I had the most supernatural peace I'd ever had in my entire life. End quote. Losing your kids? Your dad? Really? Yeah. See, I think Peter is trying to comfort us that God will meet us at the lowest points. Give us that peace. Give us that confidence. And you know, I know that God is doing that because I see this perspective in many of you. I've had some of you in our living room in the middle of a crisis or have visited you in the hospital when the doctor said, yes, you do have cancer. And I'm continually amazed at how God undergirds in the midst of trouble. Particularly when we accept his sovereign will in our lives and we see Christ as our hope. Let's pray.